Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up in today's show, the Prime Minister announces a new COVID vaccination deal for production in Canada. But that won't be finished till the end of this year. Why didn't he do that a year ago instead of lining up for other people's vaccines? A new poll out now suggests that Ontarians blame the federal government for the current shortage of COVID-19 vaccines and their inability to produce them on Canadian soil. And we celebrate Black History Month. Is this year different than the past? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Good news, Canada will start producing its own COVID-19 vaccine. However, by the time that happens, I may be old enough to get one. So stay safe. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. He's back. Uh, good afternoon. Hey, buddy. Can you grab the door? Thanks. I'm calling him like he's the dog. Uh, come here, puppy. Uh, good afternoon. It is uh, 1210. It is 900. CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station. Keep it the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Uh, the good news is uh, Wyerton Willie, uh, I can't remember if he did see a, sh- he did see a shadow. So that means we're in early spring. Is that what it is? Oh, I think I've screwed it up. Uh, and any, what is it? I think Never. you're right. I-, I agree with you, Scott. <laughs> Yeah. Well, oh, man. I'm not sure that's a good thing or not, Will. Uh, but as Shona Thompson said, there is some sort of uh, scandal involved in whether the actual groundhog made that prediction or someone just threw a hat. I, I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, we'll take it. What the heck? Uh, we've all been uh, groundhog. It's been groundhog year, isn't it? Isn't it groundhog year? Welcome to groundhog year. Uh, you know, you get to poke your head out if you have to go for groceries. Uh, where were we? Here is today's daily commentary. Guys, what do you think about when you think of the month of February? No, it's not just the end of dry January and you can drink cocktails again. With the second month of the year comes Valentine's Day. Sorry, didn't mean to make you double over during this already difficult year. So how do you celebrate Valentine's Day during a global pandemic? Or can you? Is it even allowed? What does the law say of Valentine's Day? You can't go out, so will flowers be hoarded just like toilet paper was this year? Or perhaps even a more appropriate gift, considering where we are? Are chocolates a good idea when you've both probably already packed on the COVID-19 pounds? Can you do a curbside lingerie thing? Or would that be just a little too creepy for the neighbors? It's pretty hard to think about someone romantically when you've been locked down for almost a year. Instead, you may just want to stab them with a fork. And that's not very romantic, is it? Maybe like our birthdays, our Easter, Thanksgiving, and Christmas, we should just forget about Valentine's Day this year. Guys, what do you think? Anybody interested? Put the fork down. I'm Scott Thompson. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Send us a note via the website, Thompson at 900chml.com. The phone lines are always open. All right, the Prime Minister earlier today announcing a deal with uh, Novavax to produce a vaccine here. Uh, again, the facility's not built, and this will be completed by summer. But here's what the Prime Minister had to say. Two companies, 
Precision Nanosystems and Novavax are now on track to manufacture vaccines right here in Canada. This is a major step forward to get vaccines made in Canada for Canadians. To begin with, we've signed a memorandum of understanding with Novavax to produce their COVID-19 vaccines at the new NRC Royal Mount facility in Montreal. Pending Health Canada approval, tens of millions of Novavax COVID-19 doses will be made right here at home. We need as much domestic capacity for vaccine production as possible. That's why we've already invested $46 million in the vaccine development facility at the University of Saskatchewan's Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization. The good news we've just heard is that Vido Intervac now projects they will be able to produce up to 40 million doses annually. We are investing in Canada's biomanufacturing sector for today and for the long term. So lots of questions coming out, and uh, obviously the Prime Minister feeling the heat today. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Rachel Gilmore, Federal Affairs Journalist for Global News, and is with us now. Rachel, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, thanks. Nice to, uh, nice to chat with you. So what about the timing of all of this, Rachel, uh, and, and why this is happening right now? So, I mean, it's happening now because this is the point at which Canada has finally reached an agreement on one of these. I mean, obviously, we've really been lagging behind in terms of our capacity to produce vaccines. That's a longstanding issue in Canada. Um, so it's not a new thing, but I think every government is now kind of wishing that they had ramped it up in the past uh, so that we wouldn't end up in this situation. But it has taken until now for us to finally get an agreement with one of these companies with a promising vaccine candidate to produce it in Canada. There's a few others that are kind of in the works. We have Canadian-based ones that are being manufactured, sorry, not being manufactured, but being studied within Canada. But this is really the kind of biggest announcement to date of a vaccine that would be produced in Canada. Uh, so obviously, um, this is produced in Canada, but this is not a Canadian company. This is not a Canadian solution. It's a company out of Maryland, out of the United States. So uh, is there any other deals like this with any of this massive portfolio that the prime minister kind of uh, 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 often likes to talk about? Uh, is there any more deals like this in any of these past portfolio deals? So there's not a ton. Um, Medicago is a Quebec-based uh, vaccine manufacturer. Um, so they are working on their vaccine candidate that, um, you know, it's still going through its whole study research phase. And that would initially be produced actually in the United States. I believe it's North Carolina. Right. Um, and then would eventually end up being produced in Canada. But that's still kind of a while off. And we wouldn't see that, I think, until next year at the earliest. And then we also, um, we do have vaccine production with Sanofi in Toronto and uh, GlaxoSmithKline in Quebec. But, um, you know, those, they're working on a vaccine together, but that one's also still a while off. So Novavax is a little bit closer to being a tangible, <laughs> usable vaccine. Um, so that that's why this is uh, an exciting announcement, but otherwise we're we're pretty reliant on other countries for our vaccine doses, and that's something that's got a lot of people nervous with what's going on in Europe right now. 
Uh, this seemed to be uh, not on people's radar. It didn't. It seemed to be a non-story until a report came out this week from uh, 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 Sir Bell, who was a, a, a Canadian who worked on the Oxford vaccine, and said that the UK was in the same spot that we were when this all started. Uh, it was the UK that decided to uh, to to go into production. Uh, whereas Canada decided to try to secure the portfolio. Um, I found it fascinating that when asked, the Prime Minister said, well, he's blaming this on past governments, yet he made the same mistake at the beginning of this pandemic as the past governments have made in looking for a deal that wasn't Canadian. I think that's one of those things that you see a lot in politics. (laughs) People keep uh, passing the buck from administration to administration, from parliament to parliament, when, you know, there's these issues that aren't so pressing in the moment. Like when you're not having a global pandemic, the vaccines aren't a big deal. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So, you know, it's not exactly it wouldn't be this politically exciting announcement for any government to make until now when it is the most politically exciting announcement. So I'm sure, you know, um, a lot of as I mentioned, previous governments are wishing that they had done more on this. It was actually, I think, in the 80s that we started to really see a lot of our vaccine manufacturing capacity leave the country. Um, so, you know, it's a longstanding issue. But, you know, <laughs> I think all of us are wishing that Canada had started looking at this a while ago if only uh <laughs> we had heeded the warnings of movies like uh contagion yeah. that yeah. <laughs> kept talking about the fact that this could happen so a uh, tough day for the prime minister today he was getting hammered again as well as the transfer of vaccine from the uk or sorry from the european union into uh canada we've certainly heard of restrictions uh and in what the prime minister called musings uh he was pressed about having anything in writing that we weren't on an exemption list and there's there's nothing in writing uh on all of this and and used actually the phrase it's not like small claims court uh how do you think that's going to go over and 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 did he get did he get pinned there he definitely um, seemed to be caught a little bit flat-footed at first there. So, you know, he was saying that he had received assurances that these EU transparency measures that everyone's worried could lead to them cutting off Canada's supply. Because right now we're super reliant on the um, facilities in Europe who are making the vaccines that we're receiving right now with this whole timeline. Our whole plan <laughs> uh, is basically reliant for the most part on Europe. Um, so, you know, when we're hearing about this, these measures, a lot of people are getting nervous. And <laughs> Trudeau was asked, did you get those assurances in writing? And he took a pause, like there yeah. was this moment where he kind of stared. And then he said that agreements between nations are based on a, an awful lot on conversations. And, you know, you, you say things to each other and then you say it publicly and then that's how deals get done. But I think that that's got a lot of people nervous because at the end of the day, if you don't have it in writing, I think uh, anyone who's negotiated a job contract knows what that can mean. So um, it's, it's definitely one to keep an eye on. It's something that's got a lot of people nervous and it's got everyone hoping that we shore up our internal kind of domestic vaccine manufacturing capacity. All right. So, uh, again, that uh, bodes well for the future. Uh, obviously, we're going through shortages now with uh, uh, none last week and a limited supply this week. Anything more on what is going to arrive from the EU in the immediate future? Anything more on supplies getting back to where they should be? 
So I think that we are expecting things to start to ramp up in the next few weeks on Pfizer. Um, I think we're all hoping that Pfizer makes good on its promises in terms of, you know, the reason why we hit this snag is because they're expanding their ability to manufacture vaccines. So what they say is going to happen is that we're seeing this dip, but then it's going to be kind of made up for in the future because of the fact that they're going to be able to make more vaccines. So um, as we see that kind of explosion in production, they'll be able to meet their Q1 targets for Canada. And that's by March, right? So um, I think that by the end of this month, we'll start to see a lot more doses coming in. Um, obviously, the Moderna snag is a really tough one, too, especially for remote communities that are way more reliant on that vaccine since it's easier to ship and store. Um, but, uh, you know, the government kept saying and Trudeau is saying today that we're still on track for September. Um, you know, I, I have a feeling they'll be saying that until September and we'll see if it actually happens. But uh, it's, I think people are pretty nervous and uh, we're all hoping that we're going to see that those Q1 targets be met. Rachel, we heard that uh, the prime minister had a, a phone conversation with Kamala Harris, the, the vice president down in the United States. Uh, any chatter as if uh, any chatter as to whether uh, U.S. doses or uh, anything from Pfizer out of Kalamazoo, Michigan would be made available? Was that on the docket at all, especially considering Novavax is a U.S. company? Yeah, so Trudeau really only um, said a few sentences about this at the end of his uh, his speech today. So he said that he talked to VP uh, Harris about climate change, trade, and about fighting the pandemic and creating jobs. So he kind of just did that whole laundry list thing. Like we talked about all kinds of things, um, but he didn't give any specifics. So it doesn't sound like there's any huge strides being made unless I've missed something. But uh, I haven't seen <laughs> any big announcements or big developments or any indication from Trudeau that we're having any um, any help coming from the U.S. anytime soon in terms of uh, you know building on our vaccine supply with the help of our neighbors. I don't I don't think we're going to see that. We're seeing a lot of vaccine nationalism right now and um, everyone wants to have as many doses as they can get, including us. And, uh, you know, I got to I got I to say, you know, I'm sure if we had the capacity to produce vaccines and we started sending them to the states, people would be questioning that as well. So it's, it's not a very politically yeah. savvy move for leaders to make. So I'd be very surprised if a brand new Biden administration starts uh, shipping those really yeah. demand vaccines elsewhere. Uh, so the conversation between the vice president and the prime minister, uh, m- mostly ceremonial at this point? That's what it seems like. Um, you know, we did have uh, a little bit of news leak out of it in the sense that uh, Kamala Harris did pledge solidarity over the two Michaels who are detained in China in the call. So so that's a little bit that's a little bit interesting just because that situation is it's so complicated to just kind of squeeze in at the end of this uh, this chat with you. So I don't know yeah. how deep you want to dive, but obviously that whole situation is the result of in large part tensions um, between China and the U.S. The U.S. is the one who asked for the extradition that then resulted in those two Canadians being detained in uh, retaliation for Meng Wanzhou's arrest in Canada. So long story short, if the U.S. is willing to help us, there's a potentially a better chance that the Michaels will come home. So uh, mm. that, that's a promising development that we're seeing some goodwill there. But who knows where it'll actually lead. It'll be fascinating to see where that uh, that part of the story does go. Uh, Rachel Gilmore with us, federal affairs journalist for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Rachel, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. 
Thanks, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A new poll by Campaign Research, which was in the Toronto Star, uh, suggests Canadians blame Ottawa for COVID-19 vaccination shortage. Uh, Most Ontarians blame the federal government for the current shortage of COVID vaccines. Uh, This new poll has shown campaign research surveys. 52% uh, believe it was Ottawa's fault that supplies are low, while 15% point the finger at the provincial government, which I find fascinating because the province are only in charge of distribution and as we've said through this whole campaign distribution will have the odd glitch here and there but this is not an approval it is not a distribution problem it's a supply issue we simply do not have the vaccine so to talk more about all of this nick cavallis is with us principal at campaign research and is with us now nick thank you for the time i hope you're doing well oh i'm doing great thank you for having me on today how does this information change just from, say, a few weeks ago? How, how have attitudes changed? Oh, big time. So we've been tracking these questions now uh, every week in January. And so what everything you just told your listeners is true, except, you know, there's a couple things I'd like to say about uh, in addition to that. Number one, mm-hmm. um, three weeks ago when we tracked this question, 42% of Ontarians blamed the federal government for lack of vaccines more than any other level of government. And it was 20% that blamed the Ford government. And then last week, that number changed a little bit more to 47, and now it's 52. The other thing I wanted to say to you is, because you you raised it in your opening remarks, about that there's still 15% of the population, voting population in Ontario, that blames the provincial government, the Ford government, for the lack of vaccines. And it's interesting, nowhere else across Canada, because we've been doing this study across Canada as well, every other province in the country outside of Ontario, those voters blame their provincial government somewhere between 4% of them and 7% of them blame their the provincial government for lack of vaccines. But in Ontario, that number it started at 21, and now it's 15. It's still very high. Well, I think it's very fashionable to hate the Ford government here in Ontario. Uh, that being said, That's we remember a nice way this. Of dis- putting it. Yes, yes. Uh, We've we've known that way back when, and it started with Bonnie Henry in B.C., she said, we're not waiting, we're not following the prescription from Pfizer, we're not following the prescription from Health Canada, we're just going to unload all of these vaccines, we're not holding anything back for the second dose as per the prescription. And then, of course, the shortage came, and everybody was screaming all the time about how much vaccine were in Ontario freezers, and it's the second dose. So it amazed me that people are blaming the government for an empty shelf well i'm the provincial government i'm expecting the same people that went out and did drew up murals and painted murals of dr tam and bonnie henry to be painting murals of doug ford and general hillier and christine elliott tomorrow because because you know like literally one month ago the ford government was under enormous fires mo- uh, fire mostly from the left leaning and left-wing portion of the media gallery uh, for holding these vaccines. Yeah. And even today, there were two reporters in that press conference that your listeners just took part, listened to, where they were still trying to say, ask Ford if he made a mistake somehow or if how is this fa- his fault. Thank God General Hilliers there. Thank yeah, God yeah. he's there. Yeah. 
Uh, I see that point. Um, so this research that you have for this uh, for this poll is done through January. Uh, some big information happened at the la- latter part of the month and the beginning of this month, and that was uh, Sir Bell, a Canadian who's working on the vaccine project for Oxford in the UK, came on Canadian media and said, this is all poppycock. Uh, uh, the, the UK was not in a position to produce any of these either when it started, but they decided to go in this direction right away instead of Canada, you know, the 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 CanSino deal with the Chinese that fell through and then started working on just accumulating the largest portfolio possible. Then Sir Bell comes on and says there's no reason why Canada couldn't couldn't have started in the same place the UK did and end up where we are right now, the UK meaning, by producing these things now. So what do you think that these numbers are going to become next month when this information is revealed now that Canada was in that position to to produce it's just it the you know it fell on deaf ears within the government and 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 aside to that on the press conference today uh, the prime minister blamed past government for this but in fact he spent the first year with the same attitude and was was not interested in production the prime minister of Canada you know sorry I'm going to take off my public opinion researcher hat where I try to be straightforward about what the public thinks and and put on my partisan uh, political hat for a moment. The prime minister just a few days ago, I think it was Friday afternoon, told the country that the borders of Canada have been closed to international travels from March. And not one person in the press gallery who was able to ask a question challenged him on that bold-faced lie. So, yeah. you know, believing anything that comes out of the prime minister's mouth, I think, is because, is you know, something conservatives don't do. But more voters who are just not partisan and political are starting to shake their head and scratch and say, what, what's going on here? And, you know, there's a lot of things that have happened that insiders and conservatives might complain about or insiders and liberals might beat their chest about. But the average person in Ontario and Canada just wants to make a living feed yeah. the family, you know, make their life a little bit better, maybe get to retirement with some money in the bank. And they're just shaking their heads. How how can Canada, the number one country in the world for so many things that we just boast about, right, about how great we are and, and all these things that we have be 50th in the world on vaccine acquisition and distribution? Um, it, it just seems fascinating that, you know, uh, the government has constantly said, the federal government has constantly said, uh, you know, how large this portfolio is that they purchased, but they don't seem to have produced uh, or signed any licensing or production deals with this. And the, the premier was asked about this at his news conference just moments ago, and he said, I'm not going to call out the federal government on this. I'm not going to fight with the federal government about this, in other words. And he basically said, but we got facilities right here, right now that can do this. So uh, what do you think the numbers next month are going to be like when it does start to surface to that average Canadian that's just trying to put food on the table that, you know, we had the same attitude as those past prime ministers in not encouraging Canadian production for the first part of this pandemic. I mean, you know, this case was just uh, uh, this deal with Novavax, which is a U.S. company, was just announced today. Had we had done this way back when, where would we be now? I mean, is that going to start to seep into the mainstream message? Well, I think that if your colleagues in the media have the guts that you do to talk about this the way you are, then the answer is yes. I think that slowly it'll go from 52% of Ontarians 
which government do they blame the most of the three levels of government, that'll go up to 60. But, you know, I just want to tell you this, and I want you to chew on this one and with your viewers, with your listeners later, like men, all men, 18 to, you know, 18 to 34, 35 to 55 and 55 and over are already at 65%. Like they're Mm -hmm. already blaming the federal government at that level. It's women, all women from 18 all the way to 55 and over who still blame the federal government three or four to one compared to the provincial government, but four out of 10 women don't want to assign blame. Hmm. And that's very interesting. And I believe, and I haven't done enough research to conclude, but I believe that has to do with their favorability rating for Trudeau, women's favor, female favorability rating. For yeah, Trudeau. they love them, yeah. Much higher, much higher. Not they love them, they're much yeah. higher than men. And they're waiting. To, to still make a judgment there. And so that's what's going to break. And, you know, federally, the, the Liberals win Ontario and one last time, and, and, and they're leading Ontario right now because they have this significantly humongous gap between the Conservatives uh, over women, 35 and over. Mm-hmm. This might change all that. And this is why Trudeau is now running around with like a badge and guns and he's going to close the borders down and he's going to do this and you're going to go to an isolation facility and we're going to send the police to bust up your home. Like this is why Trudeau all of a sudden has found religion in, you know, uh, the opposite of what he used to talk about, which is we're a post-national nation. We don't believe in borders and all that kind of jazz that he was talking about when he came to power. And I think... It's a deathbed conversion, and we're going to see a lot more of it over the next month or two. Um, how much attention does the public have on the CanSino deal, which was the deal with China that he made for a vaccine? Way back in the beginning, March and April, he was announcing this and, and so on. Then, of course, it fell through when China basically stole all the information and then said, no, you're not getting the vaccine. Um it seems it doesn't seem to be resonating that in the early stages of this vaccine, when he should have been doing these deals with Novavax, he was working on a deal with China, uh, you know, a country that is, you know, uh, putting the boots to us at every turn, not to mention the two Michaels. Um, when it starts to resonate how much time was spent on this consigno deal and how we lost the intellectual property from that. And that uh, and that this took up too much space at the beginning of this pandemic. Is that going to change public opinion? Like well, just even the fact that doing a deal with China instead of the U.S. or instead of the U.K. or or even Canadian companies. No, I think that I think the answer right now is no. Canadians don't even know the details of this deal because yeah, you know, look at like I said, if people like yourself who have this tremendous platform to educate uh, masses of people you know, start doing the right thing and just putting out the facts there. Like, I don't think you have a problem punching Ford in the nose if Ford deserves it. Yeah. No one, and no one seems to in this province, right? But with Trudeau, everyone's reserved and pulling their punches. And I think, you know, if one third of your colleagues just go out there and tell it the way it is, I think then Canadians will tune into all of this um, and start to really think through how this came to be. Um, uh, uh, no way to predict the future. Uh, you must be eagerly waiting your next, your next set of numbers to come in for, for, with respect to what we're talking about and, and who blames who for this. 
Oh yeah, I'll, I'll be back in the field in about ten days to to check up on it again. Um, believe it or not, there's you know there's some business people who are really interested in this. I mean, there's a there's a lot of folks in the country who you know don't want to see Trudeau continue as the prime minister. Some of them want a liberal government to continue with a different leader, and others just want a conservative government. And there's a few that NDP, but some of those people are reaching out to me saying they want to keep track of this. They've been reserved because he is the Teflon prime minister, literally can get away with anything. But I think at this point, uh, this one's a tougher one to get away with, and people are interested. So I'll be doing this every 10 days, uh, three times a month, maybe four, um, all the way through until we get some vaccines, which we don't know when that will be. Like we, we had, you know, if you listen to the last thing Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland said, she looked into the camera also on Friday and said that Canada has the most diverse vaccine portfolio in the world. Like that was something like... Yeah, and I think Canadians are getting tired of that answer when there's no- nothing on the shelves. Uh, Nick Corvallis, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. I'm sure we'll chat again. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. David Aiken, Global News Prime Minister. And yet for all that you've just said, today's announcement about domestic vaccine manufacturers comes, you know, within hours of your trade minister issuing press release assuring us we're going to get this stuff. Nothing is written down, yet we have lots of stuff written down on trade agreements. Are you certain that the EU is not going to break its word? Why can't we get Canada on that list of countries that are exempted? Why can't you get something in writing? Why haven't you asked for something in writing? In the spring, uh, we made a decision uh, that standing up domestic production of PPE was the right thing to do, regardless of uh, whether or not we were confident we were going to continue to be receiving uh, uh, PPE from countries around the world. We knew that standing up domestic capacity was just the smart thing to do, not just for the short term, but to build the kind of resilience and jobs and opportunity uh, that Canada needed through this pandemic. Similarly on vaccines, even though uh, we have strong assurances from uh, the European Union that the measures, the, the transparency measures they're bringing in will not uh, affect Canada's supply, it is only responsible and right for Canada to be investing as well in our domestic biomanufacturing capacity. And that's exactly what we're doing. But the question is, why didn't you do this a year ago? That's the question, because you made the exact same mistake that you're accusing other governments of making since 19, since the 1980s. And I don't think that's right. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations expert. Alyssa PR, she is with us now. Alyssa, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. Thank you for asking. Um, I think what came out of this press conference for me today was he was taking a lot of shots instead of standing up for what questions were being asked to him by reporters and you know he used phrases like lessons learned everyone was caught off guard with the pandemic obviously the announcement that came out uh, uh yesterday or the day before from sir bell from canada in regard to the oxford project saying hey there's no reason why canada can be in the same place as what the uk is uh all of a sudden boom we're starting to hear this announcement and so on and and i guess what bothers me in this is he's uh, he was he even blamed the last government uh, for allowing us to be in this position, yet he's taken the exact same position as all these other prime ministers since the 1980s through the first year of this pandemic. Listen, Scott, as you know, 
politicians of the day can create any sort of revisionist history that they want in order to underscore their policies of tomorrow. So, you know, whenever you're making this sort of announcement, you always, you know, whenever you're prepared for this sort of announcement, I'm sure that Katie Telford and his office are, you know, they go through the Q's and A's, they run through the answers, they make sure that they, all these answers block and bridge. So you block the negativity of the answer and then can bridge into what you want the answer to be. Now, you know, the thing is, is that you're standing in front of seasoned reporters. And when David Aiken came on to ask this question, I thought, brace yourself, buddy, because this is not going to be nice. So, Well, he went on to talk about PPE. It's like, my goodness, how how far around the block do we have to go before we get back to the answer? Well, and I think that if we get down to brass tacks about this answer, here, here you have a government that's now starting to hedge its bets. Number one, we have nothing in writing that's saying that they're not going to, you know, European manufacturers are not going to hold back um, distribution to vaccines. And I think that every Canadian should be uh, worried about that. I think that we are going to get our vaccines, Scott. I, I think that we'll all get our shots at some point. But right now, by making this announcement today, what Trudeau is doing is hedging his bets because they know they have nothing in writing, and maybe they're going to get all their promised doses by March 31st, and maybe they won't. So even if they do get all their promised doses, then you go to your scenario B, and the scenario B is, well, they might give us everything that we need by March 31st, but then what's going to happen afterwards? And you need to have your plan B done. So what do you do? You get going with an agreement with a vaccine manufacturer, this time out of the U.S., that'll be, and the contingency must have been that it needs to be manufactured in Canada, and try and hedge your bet that say, okay, listen, you know, we knew that there might be some problems with worldwide distribution, but look what we've already done now, and I announced this back in February of 2021. So while they believe that they're getting ahead of a curve with inherent problems that may happen, what you need to do is deal with the news of the day. So hopefully what the, you know, the Trudeau and his, and, you know, his pals and his posse are trying, want us to believe is that let us allay your fears. We've already bought 52 million doses. We're not just thinking, you know, future short term, but we're also now thinking future long term because we know that bugs and superbugs are not going away. And now we will have the capacity to make vaccines right here in Canada. And that was the bottom line message. That was the go to narrative. And you heard that almost at the answer for every question. So hopefully what they will what they will judge the media outcome of this press conference is is how far up that particular message makes it in every news item and broadcast Mm. item. Interesting, and I know exactly what you're saying as far as strategy, but that wasn't the question. The question was, why not sign those deals within that massive portfolio you did with other U.S. companies? So in the end is... Well, again, but at the end of the day, are you not making the same mistakes that you are accusing other prime ministers of making over the last few decades. You hey, did the you same thing. To that, though? I mean, you know, what politicians going to admit to that and stand up and say, okay, I made a mistake. The answer to the mistake question, as you heard him say over and over again, was we've learned our lessons. We have learned lessons. This is unprecedented. We continue to learn and we continue to try and do the right thing by Canadians. And we have learned our lessons. No head of state is going to get up there and say, well, you know what, I'm so sorry, but I screwed up. 
So, but then to blame the you know the, he didn't even say governments. He said government, meaning the conservatives, to blame them for doing something that he himself did during the first year of this pandemic. He went to others to buy up instead of looking at homegrown solutions. And there's lots of documentation of companies that came to him in, in March and April and said, hey, we can work on a solution if we got support. They weren't interested in that, just like past governments were not interested. Well, of course, you're going to make that that uh, dotted line uh, association, Scott. Of course you are. Uh, you know, if, if you know that you are doing something now that you should have done a year ago, the first, you know, rule number one in politics is look for a precedent. And what's the precedent? The precedent precedent is, quote unquote, the past government. So just don't look at me. I'm trying to, you know, clean up what was supposed to be done. You know, well, then why not come out and say, I have changed the position of past governments instead of making the same mistake for almost a year and then turning the corner because someone from Oxford comes out, a Canadian from Oxford comes out in the UK and says, Canada can totally do this. We started from scratch. That's BS. But you're never going to, in this case, you never yeah. want to admit guilt. You know, here you are, you're in a minority government, you, know, you have to be, listen, I am not excusing anybody. I'm just giving an analysis of why they yeah, say, exactly. the government say what they say. And you have to remember, there's several audiences that you need to appease here. There's your own party, there's your base, there's the opposition, and, you know, there's industry, and then there's Canadians. And, you know, put that in any order that you want to put that in. So whatever you say, and this is where communications and, and people who are really great at it and crafting answers and making sure that you safeguard your position, this is where a good communicator comes in. And, you know, clearly, you know, Trudeau has surrounded himself with that. Whether he listens to them all the time, as we've seen, uh, you and I have talked about many instances where we've sort of scratched our heads, you know, that, uh, that, you know, that is self-evident. But in this case, when we're talking about people's lives, there's not that much latitude that you're given. Yeah. So you can only blame so much, you can only say so much, but the one thing that he'll never do or any politician will ever do is admit culpability. So all you want to do, especially in a pandemic, is, you know, if you're sitting there with your, you know, your crack communicators and they're saying, listen, we have to show strength. We have to show that we that we're looking into the future. We have to we have to show that we're on the ball. You know, we have to make sure that Canadians are not getting freaked out and that they are confident in that they believe in what we're doing. Now, listen, you can go into any media site, and I went to a few of them, you know, the left, the right, the center, and, you know, half the people are saying, I'm proud to be Canadian, and then the other half are saying, I can't believe this guy is still our prime minister. Hey, so, I'm still proud to be Canadian. I just cannot believe that he's pointing fingers at other parties when he's doing, he did the exact same thing. I mean, it's no different. But you have to see how people consume the news. I know. I understand, yeah. Okay. I understand. And I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Listen, you are always, you know, you always have a strong opinion and you are also doing this day after day and you hear these messages day after day. Whereas, you know, the general person is, yeah. you know, listen, with COVID, people aren't necessarily watching the news every day. No, they're sick of it. Yeah. You know, they're sick of it. So what they want to know is, is are we doing something? What what can we do if we can't trust the Europe, European and, and European manufacturers and the uh, American manufacturers? So based on that, does that message play with the people uh, where it counts? 
And some people will only get as far as, Scott, we're going to be manufacturing our own vaccine. Yeah, we're yeah. Going to be ramping up as soon as July, yeah. latest September. And if that's all they get, then they have won that messaging war for yeah. today. Yeah. Um, is this a tipping point, a turning point for this prime minister? Or is this just going to wash you know, water off a duck's back like uh, any other situation is is this a turning point for this government because clearly he has tried to sell a certain message just as you've uh, expressed and the reasons why that but clearly canadians are understanding that there's a different story here and the different story starts with novavax and an opportunity that is here now in february and next summer that could have been here a lot sooner so is this a tipping point for this government for this for this brand well, it could be if it works, and it could be if, and I'm sure that they're going to do their polling uh, tonight, or if they're not already doing it, you know, maybe tomorrow morning, to see how well it did play. Because I think that, you know, every political party does that, especially when they're throwing message out, messages out there and to see their, how successfully or unsuccessfully that they land. So if people get to the point and all they listen to is, we're going to be manufacturing our own vaccines, great. How soon will I get them? Well, could be by summer or fall. Fantastic. And the other thing that they do have playing in their favor, Scott, is that we see in many parts of the country that numbers are going down and that economies might be starting to open up again and that kids in Ontario may be going back to school on February 10th. So when you, you know, have these little blips of hope, and you accumulate them, people might start to feel good about the way that we are handling the the epidemic. Now that has to make you have to make sure all your stars align and you know that what you say actually comes to pass and that you can handle the slings and arrows that come your way. But if they do, if they do everything lines up, and this is how you work out these messages and work out these deals, if everything lines up, then you're golden. Yeah. Now, if one of the, you know, was it Mary Ng? And, you know, somebody, she says, oh, yeah, yeah, we have all these verbal deals. <laughs> you, know, listen, you don't have to do business every day to know that sometimes you can trust a verbal deal and sometimes you, you can't. So if one of those verbal deals does blow up in their faces, yeah, they can lean on, well, we're going to be manufacturing our own vaccine. So that is one proof point. But... You know, if it's a big deal that falls through in terms of its commitments, that's going to be trouble. So uh, I listened to the prime minister speak this morning. He he sold this as a Canadian solution produced uh, in Canada. Why did he not mention this was a U.S. company? I had to go online to find that out. Well, because it's being produced in Canada. It's a, he, he's not lying. I mean, he's saying that it's a Canadian yeah. solution produced. But he purposely did not mention the U.S. And why would you not? Why would you not mention the U.S. when this is, you know, obviously been an international story? Secondary message when you're coming when you're coming at it like this. Again, this is just how communications yeah. works and how messaging works. And you look at your key messages and you put them all down on a piece of paper. Let's say you have about ten. You whittle it down to five, and they say, "Okay, if asked, you know, if they say where, you know, what, you know, what company did we do this deal with?" Then you can say it's in the states. But until then, just keep saying made in canada it's so it's so refreshing when everything's transparent isn't it Alyssa? (laughs) 
you mean when I provide that for you? No, <laughs> oh, my. Uh, this is something. Alyssa Freeman with us, uh, PR expert, public relations expert, Alyssa PR. Alyssa, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. And you too, Scott. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, it is Black History Month. That is what February is all about. Barrington Walker is with us, Associate Vice President of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, and a professor in the Department of History at Wilfrid Laurier University, and is with us now. Barrington, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thanks so much. Uh, Obviously, Black History Month, um, it's been around for a few years now. Is it more significant this year, considering the year that has been, including the death of George Floyd? Uh, You know, know, in some respects it is. Uh, This year it gives us an opportunity to reflect on the the linkages between the the past uh, and the present, right? And and what what the present... Um, demands in, in terms of an understanding of past events. Um, and I think really what black history is bringing to the fore in this particular year. Um, but again, as I say, to an extent, it, it's always been true. Um, it's giving us a chance to reflect on the demands for, for equity and, 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 uh, and justice and racial justice uh, during this time of year. So I think for me anyways, it has um, added significance this year, but it's always been, um, as you said in your opening remarks, very important. What do you and I've had this discussion with members of, of Black Lives Matter, but what is different and, and why was it different post George Floyd and his tragic loss of life? And many were saying, well, you know, things like this happen and then you know, it's forgotten about. But, but what was different this time? What what resonated with citizens that made them look at this scenario different? You know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot to discuss there. That's a very complex question. Um, so, you know, the, I mean, the blunt matter of the, the the fact of the matter rather is that the murder of George Floyd um, was not um, an anomaly. Um, you know, there were many similar sorts of of um, of killings uh, before uh, what happened to George Floyd, um, and we you know we've all seen them in news media and read about them in print media and seen them. In, in social media. Uh, so in, in that sense, what happened to George Floyd was a, a continuation and a long and sort of sad story of these sorts of things. Um, I think what uh, makes this particular instance a little more uh, noteworthy is that it, um, it happened during a time of global pandemic. Um, it happened during mm. a time I feel a lot of people were on lockdown. I think people had um, more um, attention uh, that they could spend on what had transpired. Um, and I think there was um, a lot of pent-up um, anger at the differential impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on racialized communities, Indigenous communities, and other equity-seeking groups. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of reasons. And then as a result of that, um, you saw the the social protest that was sparked all across North America. And I think that in light of that uh, police killing, which I think is what has made this um, such a a pivotal event, right? So by this, I mean the the killing of George Floyd. What about the significance of that eight minutes and 47 or 46 seconds that we all saw? And and, and as you mentioned, Barrington, I mean, it's not the first time. But there was something different about this time. And how significant was that video in its entirety? 
I mean, again, there have been uh, there there have been other videos. Um, yeah, that that were similar, um, similarly graphic in nature, similarly distressing in nature. But you know, you you, you are right. Um, I was. Um, I don't like to think about that video um, very much, but it, it it really did have a profound effect. Um, watching um, the life uh, drain out of um, George Floyd, uh, you know, his pleas for help, um, the sort of you know the the, the lack of response uh, while his life was was um, was slipping away. Um, so I, I I do think, and of course, the circulation of those images. Uh, across mass media, I think did did have an uh, did have an effect. So again, it's not the first. I mean, we could point to similar sorts of um, instances, not resulting in death, but say with you know, say from Rodney King to this present moment, mm. um, that's been a part of this story is the way in which these things have been often captured um, on you know cameras and cell phone cameras and that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Uh, the the graphic nature of it um, was was really upsetting and really distressing for many people. And what about this resonating with those beyond the black community? And I remember speaking with a member of Black Lives Matter about that, and that's what she said she felt the difference was. Now, this was last year uh, mm-hmm. or closer to, to his tragic murder. Um, but you know, what she noticed was the support was, was widespread that, that lots of people were joining in the chorus for change as well as just from the community. Did you see that at all? Yeah. I mean, I think if you look back at some of that footage from the time, if you look at the social protests that were sparked across North America, that is one of the things that struck me was that these were not, um, monochromatic um, crowds that were taking to the streets. These, these were these are multi generational, but mostly young people, multiracial, multi ethnic crowds, um, people representing all different sorts of um, identity groups uh, were there. And I think that's that's one of the things. And in, in, in the context of such a terrible event, that was positive. Uh, was that unlike uh, some earlier eras uh, where civil rights protests and social movement protests were sparked, um, this seemed like it did cross a lot of um, a lot of differences in terms of the response to it. So that again, that's one of the things that I took away from from this uh, terrible uh, time uh, that was positive. And I think I was also heartened by the number of young people. Um, who are involved in 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 the protests as well? I'm going to ask some questions now, Barrington, and from the devil's advocate perspective, and the hope is here is in your answer. Um, and, and these are things that have just come up that I've noticed during this discussion by people who perhaps fail to see the message here. Uh, and and let's start with the name Black Lives Matter, in, in which you heard many come back and say, "Well, all lives matter." Well, of course they do, but if that was the case, there wouldn't be the name, the reason for Black Lives Matter. How do you respond to that statement, all lives matter? Well, I mean, I guess you, you did respond to it. Um, and the, the, the claim, or the, you know, the, the title uh, Black Lives Matter is, is, is not to suggest that um, all life isn't valuable and that all life isn't sacred. The point is that historically um, black life has been systemically 
undervalued uh, by this society and by other societies. So it's a, an affirmation of the humanity of black people in the face of a history and a present that often denies that humanity. So that's, that's all that means. Um, that, that would be my would, response to that. What would your response be to the individual who said that on a personal tone? Well, I, would, I mean, I would invite that individual to, to learn more about the history of African-descended people in North America. I would invite that person to explore um, all of the work um, in terms of you know, history and sociology and literature and, and art uh, that's been done talking about the very issues that I, just, um, that I just explained. I would also invite somebody who said something like that to understand that you know, the histories of black and non-black people in this part of the world are, are very intertwined, right? So uh, the, the, you know, the, the story of black people in, in Canada, the story of black people in the United States and the Caribbean is is really a part of all of our stories, right? And when folks say Black Lives Matter, it is an affirmation of, of everybody's humanity. I mean, that's the that's the point, right? That mm. uh, a society that that undervalues the lives of you know Black people or Indigenous people is not living up to its 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 highest self. That that would be the what I would say to that person. Probably a little less long winded, but that's the essence of what I would say to that person. Mm. Uh, lots of discussion around systemic racism after the death of George Floyd. Um, and, and to me, I found it fascinating because people were, because people were constantly questioning, is there systemic racism within institutions? Is there a system in every institution, whether it's policing, whether it's, uh, business, uh, what have you? Uh, is there systemic racism? And there seem to be a lot of people who are offended by that. And because perhaps they are not racist and perhaps they don't see it. Um, but, but don't want to be labeled with, you know, we, we have a system with systemic racism in it. But again, my question is, if there isn't systemic racism, why do we have to keep asking the question if there is? It's kind of like saying, is it raining? Is it raining? Is it raining? Is it, well, you can see if it's raining. Um, the fact that we keep questioning that there is, or, or, or asking the question, if there is systemic racism in these systems, does that not mean there is? I mean, I don't know if that, if that means there is, the fact that we keep asking the question, but what I would say what points to the existence of, uh, of systemic racism is that if you look at a, a number of institutions and a number of systems across them, you see that there are you know certain folks who um, are underrepresented or, you know, don't do as well if you're talking about the education system, right? You have differential outcomes in education. You have differential impacts uh, in, in terms of the criminal justice system. You have different health outcomes. So it's it's when you look uh, across a number of institutions, you see similar patterns um, arising um, with regard to, to, to certain groups in Canada, and, you know, specifically, um, but not exclusively, African-descended people and Indigenous people. So it's it's about... Uh, taking a look at those patterns that operate across systems. And it's also not a question of whether or not a person is individually, uh, quote unquote, racist or not racist. It's, it, you know, it's, it's not about individuals. It's not about, uh, uh, you know, a person's um, individual attitudes, although that can be important too. It's about how systems uh, replicate inequality and, and how inequality is replicated across systems. 
And there can be people from uh, what we call equity-deserving groups, or there can be uh, minority people who are implicated in that as well, right? It's not just a question of only certain people being implicated in systemic racism. The whole point of that is that it's, it's a system. And like many systems, there are people who, both from minority groups and, and non-minority uh, groups, who help prop up that system, right? So that's the, it's, it's, a, it's, mm-hmm. it's a more sophisticated way of, of, um, of understanding um, the inequalities that we see. Are those who are on the other side of this scale, those that are privileged, are they taking this too personally? In other words, it's not about you, it's about the system. That's what we're talking about here. Are we losing, are we losing this discussion by taking it personally? I think it would be, uh, this is a very sensitive topic, so I think it would, um, and as somebody who's been involved in facilitating these conversations for a long time, that is certainly something that is is on the table. Um, you know, we're all human beings, and we we live our lives through our own lenses and our through our own experiences. And because we're all individuals, and we express and, and we experience things through a personal lens, of course, people are going to take things um, people are going to take things personally. Part of one of the challenges in having these conversations is that people often will shut down. So when you have a when you want to have a conversation about um, what we, what we were just talking about, about systemic inequality, um, about systemic uh, injustice, often the reaction is, is for people to say, well, you're, you're saying that this had something, that I did this personally, that this had something to do with me, or, you know, kind of the, you know, the sins of the father sort of argument. And it, that takes, um, it takes care in facilitating those conversations. And of course, not everybody's going to agree. There are some people for whom, you know, this, this, conversa- this is a conversation that they're just not going to want to have. Um, but I think uh, there's a piece around open dialogue. I think there's a point uh, 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 there around education and meeting people where they are with the recognition that sometimes, um, sometimes folks have to just agree to disagree. But I think it's also important in these sorts of conversations to be respectful of, of different views and, and, and different opinions as well. It's also it's also a discussion that make it forces us to look inward and perhaps feel uncomfortable. Uh, what's it like to facilitate these types of discussions where there are uh, views on on both sides of it? How do you break that ice? How do you how do you have that epiphany moment with with two sides? Well, I think um, again, you know, you recognize that that not everybody is going to have a quote-unquote epiphany moment and people come from these people come to these conversations from very different places uh there's no uh, kind of magic uh formula for facilitating for facilitating these kinds of conversations uh these conversations are are slow uh these conversations have to be very deliberative these conversations have to be very sensitive um again of people's different experiences and they're 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 you know uh, people's different backgrounds and this sort of thing. Um, but that's, you know, that, that's part of the work. It's, it's building trust. It's having conversations that are slow. It's having conversations that are, that are deliberate, deliberative, but having conversations that are also informed um, by data and by an understanding of, of history, right? So conversations that are grounded in fact, you know, opinions are fine up to a certain point, but then at some point people have to deal with the reality of the data. They have to deal with the reality of history or not. 
What do you want Canadians to take away from this week, this year? Or sorry, this month, this year? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for me, Black History Month, again, is an opportunity to think about the contributions of people of African descent, uh, the role that people of African descent have had in 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 creating uh, the country, right? The country that we know as as Canada. And again, uh, for in, in during this particular time, uh, to think about in a historical context the demands for um, for justice that people are making in this particular time. That's built on a long history of inequality, but also a long history of resilience and a long history of of um, of survival and and triumph and these things. Right? It's a very complex. Uh, history and a very rich history. And I think that's the main takeaway for me is I would like Canadians to get a chance to know a little bit more about that history during this time. Do you find, do you find that more and more are becoming uh, more interested in Black History Month? Do you think they're using this as an opportunity uh, to educate themselves considering the events of the last year? I mean, it appears so. Um, I've had lots of requests, uh, such as the one uh, that came from your show. Um, I think that we've had a year where, again, we've been on in quarantine and in lockdown, and I think people have had lots uh, more time than they typically would have to think about these sorts of things. So I do think uh, that during this particular time, in the wake of George Floyd and in the wake of the pandemic, which hopefully will be uh, over soon, it, it I think it has sparked a, a renewed interest, um, certainly outside of um, you know, outside of black communities, which has been noticeable and, and welcome and an opportunity to, to keep this conversation, this dialogue going and, and maybe even beyond February, which would be something. Do you, do you get the feeling, Barrington, that Canadians are getting tired of this dragging out, whether it's this issue, whether it's Indigenous uh, issues? Um, do, do you get the feeling that Canadians just want these issues moved forward? They want them solved. Enough chatter. Let's get moving. Um, I mean, I think uh, I think there are certainly some folks who who feel that way. Um, and it does come across sometimes when, uh, you know, in certain media outlets, you know, one might read, uh, you know, comments in, in, in newspapers and this sort of thing. So I think that there's certainly, that certainly is a, there, there is certainly a segment of the society that feels that way at the other, on the, on the other side of the ledger. I think, uh, that there are many people who understand that these problems were, were a long time. These issues were a long time in the making and that these issues will, are, are going to be a long time in solving them. You know, some of these, some of these issues are date back 400 years. It's, these are not issues and, and conversations that can be tackled um, overnight. Well said. Barrington Walker has been with us, Associate Vice President of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion and Professor in the Department of History at Wilfrid Laurier University. Barrington, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thank you so much for the opportunity. February is Black History Month. Good time to learn more. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.